After marking hymn number 170, as Brother Harold asked us to do, I'd invite your attention in our continuing series of lessons on the book of 2 Samuel in the Old Testament. We have been involved in that series for the past five weeks, and tonight will be the sixth lesson in that series, which in many interesting ways will bring us to the halfway point in the entirety of that series. The book has a total of 24 chapters, and we've been able to discuss some two chapters at each of our sessions, and we'll continue to do so even this evening. In chapters 1 through 10, as we had made a consideration of them, we might remember that a few of the features that we had rather, rather broadly seen because they will prepare our mind to continue that series of studies this evening. David is the king of all Israel, reigning from that precious city of Jerusalem. And as he reigns from that location, Israel had been mightily blessed with a host of victories over her enemies, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Ammonites, just to name a few. And as those victories were understood and appreciated, it came to be the case that David's ascendancy seemed to be even greater and greater. Other nations paid great attention to the ascending character of Israel. In fact, many of them had become vassal nations to Israel. As that ascendancy continued, perhaps no greater statement anywhere was found than the promises the God of heaven made David, that his son would in fact erect a majestic temple to the very cause of God, and furthermore, that his dynasty, that is David's dynasty, would never cease. It would last forever. I'm sure any king would be greatly impressed to hear a statement like that, to appreciate that continuing forever thereafter. His seed would enjoy the blessing of being able to sit upon the throne and reign. You and I saw that that found its fulfillment in the Christ, the very Son of God, who, as we learn in Acts 2 verse 30, does reign over spiritual Israel until this day and shall do so until time shall be no more. Those thoughts have prepared us to see that David, though many good things were said about him and happened to him, he nonetheless maintained an element of humility and appreciated that these were God's gifts to him, not earned by his own means and by his own character. That is a very noble lesson for any of us to learn as well. But having said all that, it does bring us to chapter 11, which is where we'll take up our discussion this evening. And we shall now see a rather different set of events begin to take their turn. As these events unfold, we'll begin to see David's family crumble before his very eyes. We'll begin to see also that his reigning over the kingdom will appear to be upon a very precipiced place indeed, tottering almost on the brink of dissolution. What will happen to cause this man to go from such a mighty place of greatness to apparently such a place of desperation and a place of great hardship? Chapter 11 will begin to unfold that saga of events for us. With our attention turned to that chapter, let's approach it in the following way tonight. Chapters 11 and 12 will in fact fit together very nicely. And as we consider them and move through them, we first will unfold the story, the setting as it's given to us per se, and we'll reserve until the end of the lesson a number of applications that we can draw from it to apply even to our life today. First of all, let's unfold the story. As chapter 11 begins, we're still in the midst of Israel's conflict with Ammon, the Ammonites, if you will. And as that conflict has been unfolding now since chapter 8, we see that in verses 1 and 2, a matter unusual for the king took place. 
David himself had stayed behind while Joab and the troops were involved in battle against the Ammonites. The language is a bit interesting in that it reads, And it came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. Rabbah was the capital city of the Ammonites, and on this occasion, though kings usually go forth to war, David chose to remain behind. As he proceeded in his way of life there at the palace, one evening he was walking upon the roof of the palace, and he espied a very beautiful woman bathing. As he espied her, he in fact proceeded to do this. He inquired as to who she was, and he called her and had her brought to him by the virtue of sending messengers. She came, in fact, to him, and he and she lay together. We quickly learned that this was a married woman. Her name was Bathsheba. She was the wife of a Hittite named Uriah. Of course, David also was married by this time and had a number of children, as we've already listed. Thus, we can easily see the occurrence of adultery in David's life. As David lay with this lady, we learn, though, in the next verse that matters will only become more complicated. And isn't it true that one sin will always find one out? Numbers 32, 23. Notice that, in fact, she became pregnant as a result of the events of that evening. Here now was a lady who was not his wife, pregnant with David's child. We can quickly see David's intent was to cover this sin, to hide it and conceal it to the degree possible, and thus plan A was this. He, in fact, sent word to Joab, the commander-in-chief of the forces, and had him send Uriah, the Hittite, back to Jerusalem. David's hope was upon Uriah's return and the joy that a soldier might have to be back home, that he would spend the evening at his house with his wife, and hence that child that had been conceived in the womb of Bathsheba could well be considered to be Uriah's and not his own. That was plan A, but... Interestingly enough, Uriah was not one willing to follow along with that plan. For that very night, though he had been brought back homeward by the command of the king, Uriah did not go down to his house. Even though David had made available to him a great deal of kingly food, Uriah simply slept at the door of the palace that night, much to David's chagrin. When he learned the next day that Uriah had not gone home, he had to resort to plan B. And hence, plan B followed in this way. His idea on this occasion was, first, he asked Uriah why he had not gone down to his house. And Uriah, in a very marvelous note of nobility, said that, How could I, if I may paraphrase, how could I proceed to do such a thing when Joab and the troops, my compatriots, are sleeping in very difficult circumstances under the duress and stress of war? He said, I will not do such a thing as this. And so David's plan B followed in these words. This time, he, on the next day, called Uriah to him, threw, in essence, a significant amount of party for him, involving much intoxicating beverage. David's hope this time was to make Uriah drunken, and in that drunken stupor that he would proceed to his house and again lie with his wife, and that that child that he himself had conceived could be viewed by those who didn't know any better to be the child of Uriah. One more time, even though he was drunk and Uriah still would not proceed to his house, he remained in the confines near the palace, and now plan B had also failed. 
now he must resort to plan C. With plan C before him, David's next thought was this. He, in fact, composed a message and sent it by none other than Uriah himself and directed it toward Joab, the commander of the forces. And David's words to Joab were, in fact, of the following form. His words were direct commands to perform this. You place Uriah in the fiercest and hottest battle, and then you retreat from him. Joab, in fact, it seems, did that which David requested and demanded. And in so doing, that left Uriah a fallen man. He was slain. He was killed, just as David had hoped. After Uriah's death, we remember that word was sent back from Joab to the king that what had happened was, in fact, your wishes, and it was your request. David was not saddened to hear, of course, of Uriah's death. And as the chapter closes, we quickly notice that David, after the period of mourning that Bathsheba had for her husband, David took her to wife. And that reads verse number 27. However, it is to be noted, the very last sentence in chapter number 11 is a very ominous sounding sentence. I would ask that you look at that sentence with me. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. If ever there was a sentence that projects a cloud and a very dark one hanging over what may occur soon, it would certainly be that passage. What had taken place in this chapter is such a dramatic distinction from that character we had seen in David heretofore. To briefly review, what have we seen? David committed adultery. David committed murder. David was an accomplice to the scene of drunkenness. Furthermore, he was an accomplice in conspiracy. All four open sins in the Word of God, both Old and New Testament. And yet, here was the king of Israel, one who'd been lifted to the highest position in that land, guilty of these matters. David had done the best he was able to do to conceal it, to hide it, to cover it, to not let it be known in a public way. As chapter 12 opens, we shall begin to ask, was he successful at that? Let's turn to that chapter and see what befalls David and his family. In 2 Samuel chapter number 12, we now arrive at the consideration of this. It begins in verse 1 with these words, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. It seemingly appears so innocent. I have some thoughts that in fact describe these as well. As the events of this chapter unfold, we readily appreciate that David's attempt was wholly unsuccessful. Not only did, of course, Bathsheba know what the truth was on the whole matter, but most significantly, most powerfully, and most dramatically, the God of heaven knew it too. God was displeased with what David had done, and he knew all the details and all the gory truth of them. Thus, God commissioned Nathan to appear before David, and Nathan had a very clear statement to deliver. It was not his supposition, nor was it his opinion. He told David a story. Might I pause to say, isn't it often true that you and I can see the truth in a story and make the application far easier than we would often be if the words in declarative form were presented to us? David, there were two men living in one city. One of them was rich, the other was poor. That rich man had many herds and flocks in his possession. The poor man had only one little ewe lamb. 
that you lamb was very precious to both him and his family. In fact, it had been reared up with him. It's as though almost it was like one of the children. His children had played with it, understood the nature of its companionship. In fact, as the chapter describes it, it was a very precious thing to appreciate the means by which the ewe lamb was known to the, to the poor man. However, something unusual happened. There was a stranger, a traveler that came to the rich man, and rather than to kill one of the members of his flock and to use it to feed the traveler, he killed that little ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man. When David heard that, he was furious. He could not believe a man could be guilty of such injustice, such character of open defiance of the possessions of another. David said in verses 4 and 5, That man is worthy of death. In the aftermath of that, Nathan said, David, you are the man. David, thou art the man, to quote the words of verse 7. In the blink of an eye, David understood fully what it was that God needed him to understand. He was the very one, just like that rich man. He had everything at his disposal, and yet Uriah had but one beautiful lady, Bathsheba, and David had taken her. He had taken the life of Uriah. He was guilty of conspiracy and complicity to cover it. David, thou art the man. In the verses that follow, God unfolded some of the specifics of what he knew. David, who lifted you up when you were nothing but a shepherd? I did. David, who brought you to the highest position in the empire? I did. David, who brought you victories over the enemies all around Israel? I did. And yet you have despised my commandments. You've despised me. You've given the enemies of Israel and my enemies opportunity to blaspheme. David, you've done this. Might we stop to pause? Nathan spared no punches. Here he was standing before the man who had the capability of putting him to death. David, however, did not do that. For Nathan spoke the words of the Lord. He challenged David to appreciate the far distance to which he had fallen, where he now had allied himself. David did respond in a way that we certainly would have hoped. I would ask you to notice verses 11 through 14 as we read 2 Samuel 12. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. And I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor. And he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, and before the son. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned before the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. Oh, how much Nathan uttered to David. The various things, it was clear that God well knew what David had accomplished. He knew what he had done. And now he says a number of things. First, the sword shall never depart from thine house. In light of that, we just noted the text so clearly that we just read. Namely, David, you've enjoyed the goodness of family and the power that it has, but this is what's going to happen. Your wives, though what you did was in secret, others will lie with your wives openly in public, and others are going to know it. Furthermore, verse 14, 
since you've given occasion to the enemies, my enemies and Israel's enemies, to blaspheme, that child that's been conceived in Bathsheba's womb will die. To say all that is thus to also conclude that there's been a severe punishment laid upon David, the consequences of his sin being that he would suffer, his family would suffer, Israel would suffer, the child would die. Many things came about from sin. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when once we practice to deceive. Though that statement per se isn't found in the Word of God, isn't it taught throughout from cover to cover? The character of what comes about by virtue of sin. Even God, through Moses, told Israel, just as we had noted earlier, Be sure your sin will find you out. Numbers 32, verse 23. To comment in matters like that, lead us to see that just as surely as the sword would never depart from David's house, the evil that would arise would not come from without. David had had victory over the enemies, the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Syrians, and others. God said, David, the problems now are going to arise from within your own family. Isn't it still the case that sometimes when we face the enemy that's without, we can fortify within the family and find the strength and fortitude to meet it. But when the problems arise from within, those are the most difficult problems to face. The hardest ones to overcome. For it's within your own family those you cherish and love the most. David, the evil's going to arise from within your own family. The rest of this book of 2 Samuel will detail many of the ways that that came about. The sword shall never depart from thine house. As chapter 12 races to its conclusion, we quickly learn beginning in verse 15, Nathan departed. God did strike the child with sickness and seven days later it died. In the course of the time that the sickness was in the child, David earnestly besought the Lord on the child's behalf. Even the servants were aware of the great anxiety and stress in the life of David. However, the child did die. Upon the child passing away, David washed himself, cleaned himself up, and proceeded thus to partake of meat and made one of the most dramatic statements found anywhere in the book of 2 Samuel. He said in verse number 23, I shall not go to him, or rather, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. An emphasis, isn't it, on that one-way character of life and death. Those beyond can't return to change anything that may or may not have been done in this life. Once you and I pass away, the sentence of eternity for us has been set. David well knew that child couldn't return to him, but he would pass to the confines and the sublime places where that child then was. To notice in verses 24 and following, David did comfort Bathsheba, and another child was born to them. The name of this child is one that you and I know very well. He would be known as Solomon. The one who would succeed David as the next king of Israel. The one who often displayed a degree of foolishness in many ways, but one who in his better moments was the wisest man to ever walk the earth. He prayed to God for that degree of wisdom, and God granted it in 1 Kings 3, beginning in verse number 9. In the last few verses of 2 Samuel 12, marvelous victory again by Israel over the Ammonites is stated. And this victory was utter, final, and complete. Israel ultimately here had the victory over the Ammonites that they had desired. 
And with that said, chapter number 12 has reached its conclusion. The Ammonites now as slaves, but oh, what a difficult matter has been brought to David's life as a result of what had taken place. With that said, might we look at some lessons, applications that might be of great benefit to us as we view and consider the events in the life of David and what God told him through Nathan. These, we will be somewhat brief in our discussion of them, but oh, how powerful we shall learn that they are. The opening lesson might well thus be this. What a danger it was in David's life and what a danger it is in our own when we fail to consult the Lord. I find it so terribly moving that earlier in this book, through the first ten chapters, we encounter a man who is interested in the will of God and who seems often to have resorted to consultation with him. In chapter 2, David asked the Lord, Shall I go up to Judah? And God said, Yes. In chapter 5, David again besought the Lord and said, Shall I fight against the Philistines? And God said, Yes. Later in the same chapter, again, Shall I battle against them? And one more time, God answered him. It is incredibly significant that in all of chapter 11, there is no mention at all of the Lord until the very last word in the entire chapter. David was not in a position of seeking the Lord through those first verses when he lay with Bathsheba, when he tried to murder Uriah, when he was involved in conspiracy. God is nowhere to be found. I might submit the same problems, or at least some like it, will cover my life and yours. When we fail to seek the Lord, we're treading in dangerous territory. For isn't it still true, Jeremiah 10 verse 23, O oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. When David failed to consult the Lord is when problems entered David's life. When you and I fail to consult him, it'll not be a shocking matter. When you and I soon discover things aren't going well, troublesome times have arisen, problems both within and without have crept upon us. May we not make the same kind of mistake David did that led to this murder and led to these other things. May we ever walk hand in hand with the Lord and feel the resting power of His presence with us. But in the second place, note the constancy that is needed in terms of seeking the Lord. It can't be a haphazard thing. Every now and then to pray or consult Him, to show up at a church service once every few months, it must be a constant, urgent matter, for we understand we can't make our way alone. In Amos 6 verse 1, Woe unto them that are in ease in Zion. When David didn't go with the troops, he stayed back and he was idle. That's when the problems arose. Isn't it still that way? When we allow idleness to enter our life and aren't busy doing the things that God would have us to do, to accomplish the good works that we ought to be doing for His cause and glory, Perhaps you've heard your father or perhaps others say that an idle mind is the devil's workshop. When we allow that opportunity for him to make his way into our heart, and that shall only lead to our ruin if we allow that to take place. When David was behind, not with the troops where he perhaps ought to have been, that's when the difficulties began to arise. In the New Testament, isn't it also true in Luke 18:1, men ought always to pray and not to faint? When men thus refuse to pray or proceed to stop in that, that's when fainting will take place. 
a weariness that will follow in terms of setting aside and dropping from the work that ought to be done. Is it then any wonder that we're admonished to pray without ceasing? 1 Thessalonians 5 or 17. To have that attitude of always desirous of walking hand in hand with the Master and with the Lord and to not be guilty of idleness. In Ecclesiastes 9 verses 10 and 11, work with our hands the thing that is good. Maybe you and I should take that to heart and appreciate that when we're busy doing that which is productive, the devil will have much more difficult time inching his way into temptations that would cause us to do that which is not good. But in the third place, another lesson. Notice the foolishness in the life of David in his attempt to cover or conceal his sin. That was merely a waste of time. In fact, it only dug the hole that he had already found himself in deeper and deeper and deeper. He is already guilty of adultery. Had he not tried to conceal and hide it, the murder may never have happened. When you and I start trying to cover the sin, it only makes matters worse. The best thing that you and I can do, as we shall shortly see, is to openly repent of it and confess it. Make it known and then get it behind us. The problem will only worsen when we try to hide it and to cover it and to conceal it. That foolishness is perhaps seen in a host of texts. For after all, wasn't God aware of it? In fact, it was God who dispatched Nathan to come to David and in fact openly make known the fact that he was aware of it. In Psalm 139, beginning in verse 1, I'd invite you at your leisure this week to read the opening 12 verses of that chapter and listen to God speak about all the things he already knows. He knows our thoughts before they ever come forth into any actions. In fact, the psalmist there declared, If I should take the wings of the day and fly to the othermost places thereof, thou art there. If I proceed to the depths of the ocean, thou art there. There is no place we can hide from God. He is everywhere that you and I can even imagine being. If we proceed to the darkest, most out-of-the-place village on earth in the midst of the darkest night possible, the Lord's already there. He knows why we're there. He knows what we've done in getting there. And He knows the thoughts of our heart. You see, thus it becomes a moot point to try to hide anything from Him. He already knows it. I've listed some other passages that drive that point home. Notice in Ecclesiastes 12 verse 14, And lest we should think it possible to conceal any such matters, the very last verse of the book written by Solomon in the Old Testament says it this way, the whole duty of man is to fear God and keep His commandments, for God shall bring every work into judgment according to that He hath done, whether it be evil or whether it be good. Every work. We can't hide anything from Him. They of Ezekiel's day attempted it, but they failed. Ezekiel 8 verse 12. Might we thus learn that lesson too and race on to our fourth one. As we hinted at earlier, the proper course of action is to make that thing right by repenting of it and confessing it. It may bring humiliation to admit it, but after all, we chose to sin. The humiliation is thus a natural consequence and part of what we've done. Certainly for the king to admit that he had committed adultery would have been an embarrassment to him, I'm sure. But wouldn't that have been better than to murder an innocent man? Wouldn't it have been better than to try to engage in conspiracy and aiding in drunkenness? 
Sure it would. After all, we can see so many texts that teach us the same thing. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. Where does the healing come? The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. James 5.16 In 1 John 1, verses 9 and 10, noting the powerful statement, when one finds oneself in sin, he said, Let no man think that he sinneth not. But yet, if one confesses, God is faithful and just to forgive the sin. Isn't that the proper course of action? Perhaps one last text in Luke 13, verse 3. Nay, God there under the statement of the Christ, nay, the urging thus to repent. The character of repentance, as it's presented there, implies that one is aware of the seriousness of that sin, the seriousness that goes with it, and the affront that not is just to another human, but to God Himself. Nay, thus the repentance desired, the repentance that God demands. Perhaps a fifth lesson, the prevalence of sexual sin. We see it here in the life of the days and times of 3,000 years ago. We know well we live in a time when sexual sin seems prevalent, that so many seem interested in living together without being married, that affairs take place between individuals who are married but not to each other, the character of homosexuality and the sinfulness of itself is presented. We see the prevalence of them in our day. Here, however, was the king of Israel who was guilty of an affair, to use the language of today, guilty of adultery. It was just as wrong then as it is today. We should appreciate thus the wise words of Proverbs 5, Drink water from thine own cistern. To that man that's married, you have a woman with whom you are given the precious and granted privilege by God to enjoy the favors of sexual pleasure. It is to be with no one else. David failed to appreciate that here and noticed the sword would never depart from his house, part resulting from the sin on that occasion. Maybe another text in Hebrews 13.4. Can we not remember that marriage is honorable and all in the bed, undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. You see, sexual sin is a sinfulness that we notice is a part of that which seems to have been an accompaniment to the human family since the earliest ages of time. May we not see, though, that it has led to error, problems, and troubles in all the places it's reared its ugly head. Perhaps a sixth lesson. Isn't it fair to say, in light of this one, God's decree in regard to righteousness spares no one. David, thou art the man. Here was David, the king of Israel, and he could not claim exemption from the character of what he had done. He was just as guilty as if the lowest person in all of Israel had been guilty of these things. Sin, you see, is no respecter of person. You can be guilty. I can be guilty. The person who never darkens the door of a church building is still guilty of sin. Thou art the man. Maybe thus we can learn a lesson to never think that we can be exempt or that by virtue of past activities, we somehow are such that the sin is removed or God overlooks it in our life. There is only one means unfolded in all of time by which God will overlook it. And perhaps even then the word overlook is not entirely appropriate. 
it must be forgiven and it must be remitted. It's only by virtue of the blood of Christ that that takes place, period. And so, thou art the man, helps remind us that the same matters that occurred with regard in Acts 8 verse 20 should be remembered by us. On that occasion, Simon had just obeyed the gospel. He was a member of the body of Christ. And yet he desired to purchase the power of the Holy Spirit and transfer it himself. What was it Peter declared? Thou art in the, in the gall of iniquity and the bond of sin. He was told, you're guilty of sin. The same thing that he did is something we should remember. He needed the prayers of brethren in order for that to be remitted. He needed the blood of Christ. And it still remains so today. Thus, that lesson is a very compelling one. Sin isn't removed just because we wish it had never happened. Sin isn't removed just if we think we can do enough good works to cover it up. None of that ever removes it at all. It can only be remitted when Christ's blood cleanses it, takes it away, never more to even be remembered in terms of its guilt before the great God of heaven. But then another lesson. To despise God's commands is equivalent to despising Him. Notice the words that were again told to David. In 2 Samuel 12, I would draw attention to verse number 9. Wherefore thou hast despised the commandment of the Lord. There Nathan directly told David, you've despised God's commands. But then note the next verse. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me. Note the language. In the first place, you've despised God's command, but then through Nathan, God said, you've despised me. And hence, we conclude, to despise God's commandment is to despise Him. That's how important God's Word is. We are not reading something that's a trivial or light matter. This is all eternity rolled before us. To despise it is equivalent to despising God. That alone then speaks volumes about those who think it unimportant to study the Word of God, those who consider it a light matter to rightly divide it. Friend, all eternity hangs in the balance. It is no light matter. It is such that if we despise this, we're despising the great and omnipotent and omniscient God of heaven. David needed to learn that, and it seems he did by virtue of his response. Might we also notice in Hebrews 4 verse 12 that also teaches a similar matter. Isn't it true that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart? The Word of God, quick. That means it's active and alive. It's powerful, so much so that it could discern the distinction between even spirit and soul. Those thoughts perhaps bring us to the next lesson. The next one that leads us to say this about sin. Sin can be pleasurable for a short while. That's what Satan uses to make it enticing. Drink that beer, oh, you'll feel good a little while. We live in a world filled with us, those addicted to various and sundry things, because for a little while there's pleasure associated with it. There's a feeling unlike what they typically feel without it. Moses understood that well, didn't he, in Hebrews eleven twenty five, 25. 
He chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. You see, that's what Satan uses to make it enticing. For a little while, it'll make you feel good. For a little while, you'll be a big man in front of your friends. For a little while, you'll be looked up to by others, and you'll be the center of life of the party. But when you come crashing to the ground, you'll feel worse than you ever felt before. David, I wonder what he felt like. After David told him, or after Nathan told him, you're the man. And after God said, the sword will never depart from your house, don't you wish, a thousand times he wished, he'd never ask Bathsheba to his house. Don't you know he'd give anything if he could have taken it back? Too late then. The pleasures of sin for a season are not in any sense worthy of what you give up to have that moment of pleasure. May we never be foolish enough to think that way. But also, might we notice the next lesson? Sin's consequences bring a sword. You and I live again, as we've noted, in this sexual time when a one-night stand seems a fun thing to do. Give no thought to what's the case tomorrow and next week and next month and next year. David, you see, perhaps thought that what pleasure would have been enjoyed over the course of one evening would have had no ramifications any time the next day or thereafter. When the lady became pregnant, that changed everything. You see, sin and the character of its consequences can bring a sword. The sword, David, will never depart from your house. Sometimes you and I, too, find ourselves in a position not exactly like David, maybe, but similar. We come to realize that some foolish decision that we made will have consequences we'll have to live with for a lifetime. We can't undo it. We can't change it. There's nothing we can do but live with it. All because of a foolish moment. All because of what we chose to do one night that we wish so badly we could take back. David understood, it would seem, based on Nathan's statement to him, the soreness of that sword. That it would never depart from his house. Might you and I never forget the salient words of Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Sin is not a pretty thing. It's ugly. It's grotesque. It's evil. It has all the ugliness of all of time rolled into it. So much so that while hanging on the cross, our Savior said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God didn't forsake his son because his son was being crucified. He was there with his son, for his son was faithful to him. However, it would appear for a moment due to the sins hanging over his son's head, not sins the Lord had committed, but mine and yours. The Lord was such that God had to look away, but for a moment. That's how ugly sin is. And it'll bring a sword to my life and yours. May we in wisdom thus strive to live in such a way that's of purity, that life described by wholesomeness and soundness so that the sword will not come to my house and yours. Notice also that sin's consequences can be long-lasting and they can be grievous. You and I sometimes might hear others claim that's unfair. Why isn't it the case that my punishment ought to be in harmony with the duration of the sin? Friend, it doesn't work that way. You see, sin can bring consequences that so often you and I may not see prior to the committing of it. But a lifetime is brought under bear. Our kids may suffer for the foolish sins that we commit. 
No wonder we're admonished to ever be watchful, to watch in terms of my life and yours that we live in such a way to bring glory and not grievousness. The long-lasting character of sin can be a very, very touching matter. I've listed some things that remind us that even in Titus 2 verse 12, that constant admonition to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, that implies in terms of the tense of the verb, it's continuous and ongoing. No lapses, no moments in which we turn away and decide to live ungodly, unwholesomely, and foolishly. Maybe finally, two lessons to close our lesson. The last two. May we never forget as Christians the very thing that Nathan told David. Remember God said, David, because of your sinfulness and what you've done, you've given occasions for Israel's and God's enemy to blaspheme. Isn't that a true statement still today? When you and I choose to live in a public fashion, others know what we claim to be. Christians and those that attend at Pippin or elsewhere, but they also know how we really live. We're in their eyes nothing but hypocrites, and they thus say, well, I don't want to be like that person, and we give occasion for God's enemies to blaspheme. It's exactly parallel, isn't it? Did God take that lightly then? Did he look upon David's life and ignore the fact, or at least overlook the character, that you've given occasion for my enemies to blaspheme me? In fact, that was the very reason that God said, the son that's born will not leave. Might we remember that our life, others are watching, and as they watch, may we never give them occasion to call into question the truth of God's Word or to, in fact, blaspheme His name. For if we so do, God will hold us accountable for such. Remember in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, the times of this ignorance God winked at. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day into which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. And that brings us to the twelfth and final lesson. Sin, be it adultery, be it murder, be it conspiracy, be it drinking of alcoholic beverage, any sin can be forgiven if the proper channels are approached. David's life does illustrate that point so well. Notice again in the words of verses 13 and 14, The Lord hath put away thy sin. Nathan told David that God has put away your sin, David. Can murder be forgiven? Can adultery be forgiven? Certainly it can. God through Nathan said so. In fact, I would encourage you to read the 51st Psalm at some time this week. It follows so beautifully the ideas of this lesson, but time will not allow us to read it. It is a psalm in which David exhibited his repentance and his confession in light of what he had done in this chapter. It's a touching thing to see the tears fall from his eyes. It's a touching matter to hear the, his heart broken as he realized what he had done. And that chapter illustrates what he did in response to Nathan's statement to him. He came back and besought the Lord with tears, desiring forgiveness, approaching God in the way, and he promised as that chapter closed, God, I'll never again do anything like this, and furthermore, my life will be an open testimony to all of your truth, and I'll fail not to speak of it until the day of my death. We would have to admire David in his repentance and in his confession, 
And that, of course, is the lesson for us tonight, too. If your life and mine is encumbered with things, maybe it's not adultery, maybe it's not murder, and maybe it's not things of that sort. But if your sins have been such that they are known between you and God, go to your Heavenly Father personally in prayer, privately. Beseech His forgiveness. Pursue the character of what He's revealed in His will. In terms of practicality, you might want to share it with at least one other person. A person who can challenge you to not let you forget the promise of confession and what you need to do to be stronger. But if your sin has been public, others are aware, just like that 11th point we noted. They know what you've claimed to be, but they know what you really have been. And you need to make a change. Do that tonight. If we could urge you to do that or help you in any way, we'd be happy to do it. If either of these things, being such that you need to obey the gospel initially, or you need to return to your first love, we'd be happy to help you in either regard. Just let it be known, if you would, while together we stand and while we sing.